finally, once my ex-boyfriend got um, or was arrested, um, I mean, the abuse was daily at that point. There were times when I would be at the office and I developed stomach ulcers from the stress. I so, so skinny. I was covered in bruises all the time. I would, at like 3 p.m. every day, I would get these horrible stomach pains because I knew I had to go home soon and I just didn't want to deal with that being, but I just didn't know how to get out of it. And um, when you're so immersed in that behavior, it's hard to think about an escape plan. It's hard to think about, you know, who can help me without him hurting them? Who is, you know, open to helping me? There's a lot of judgment that comes with uh, being a victim of domestic violence. The question always immediately is, you know, why doesn't she just leave? I tried to leave multiple times. He set a dress that I was wearing on fire and poured vodka over me and tried to light me on fire. Welcome to Takeaways, Life Lessons Learned. I'm your host, Hayam Mizrahi, recording from MDL Group. Recognized market leaders in commercial real estate brokerage and property management in Las Vegas, Nevada. Join me as I explore my takeaways from the people who have influenced me the most. Let's get started. I am here today with Angelica Marie Lopez. Angelica and I met in 2012. My business partner, Jared Katz, recommended that I reach out to her and recruit her to a committee that I was, I was chairing, a social committee for a real estate organization here in town. The only thing I really knew about her at the time is she was working at another commercial real estate company and that she just went through what I'm going to call life events, quote, in quotations, and we'll talk about that a little later. The thing is, when I met her then and, and even now, I would have never known that she went through anything like that. She is a person who exuded life, continues to exude life. You talk to her, you interact with her. Currently, Angelica, you're a commercial real estate broker. You work on one of the most successful retail teams here in the market. You're one of the only Las Vegas real estate agents that has listings on the Las Vegas Strip, which is a big accomplishment. You're also a board member for SafeNest. And the last thing I'll say is you're the only person that I know that's proud of growing up in Boulder City. I'm super, super proud about growing up in Boulder City. I love Boulder. We'll talk <laughs> a little bit more about the charm of Boulder City, but thank you for coming on Takeaways. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm kind of excited. I just told you I wasn't nervous, but now I'm getting a little nervous. It's so. crazy what happens when you hit play. <laughs> I'm like, oh no, we're recording now. We'll it's shake real. it off. All right. <laughs> um, so spend a few minutes. Tell us who you are. Tell us about yourself and what you do. Well, I did grow up in Boulder City. My family moved to Boulder when I was 10 years old from Southern California. I'm the oldest of four. My little brother, who is the youngest, just graduated from high school. I love Boulder City. When I was growing up there, I wasn't really thrilled about it because you got in trouble all the time because the town's so small. I once got my keys taken away from one of my mom's friends saying that I rolled a stop sign. So I'm like, oh, wow. if you didn't see it, that's not fair. But um, that's also the beauty of Boulder City. It's small, it's quaint. I often joke that I want to 
run for mayor of Boulder City one day. I can't run until I'm 35, and I'm 31 now. So you heard I, you heard it here first. Yeah, <laughs> the campaign starts you to, now. <laughs> you have to live in Boulder City for three <laughs> years prior to. So I have all intention on moving back to Boulder City one day. So how long do you have to live there before you actually run? Three years. So you have to move there. Yeah. I mean, between you and I and, and everyone what's the who's 35? You have to be a minimum age of 35 yeah, to be American. Yeah, minimum age and three years. But between, you know, us and everybody who listens to this podcast, I still use my parents' address just in case. <laughs> so, <laughs> so talk about what you're doing now professionally. Um, I'm a commercial real estate broker. I work at ROI Commercial on the Sorrentino Group. Brian Sorrentino and Jennifer Ott are my partners. And... Isabella, Brian's daughter, just started working with us. And um, Nicole, his wife, also works um, in cold calls for us. Wow. So it's a big team. Yeah. And we had an intern this summer, Addison Gregson, which has been a lot of fun. I used to work with Scott, um, her father, at Collier's. And so it's really nice to see her come full circle, too. But no, I, I love our team. We have a very, very productive team. I'm living my career dreams. This is everything I've ever wanted to do since I was a little girl. So when I worked at Collier's, I would always say that I wanted to do retail on the strip. And like you said, we have a strip listing. Uh, I was joking yesterday, we just got another strip listing. And I wish someone would have told me how many not fun phone calls I was going to have to answer <laughs> when I made these dreams. But it's it's been great. I could not ask for a better experience or better partners. Brian's one of the most creative brokers that I've ever had the privilege to work with. I'm going to say he's one of the smartest, too, because yeah. everyone that you listed on the team is a smart and strong female yeah. <laughs> that he surrounds himself with. I'm learning you know, some secrets from him right now. Brian has two daughters, so uh, I, I think there's oftentimes once we brought Nicole in first and then Isabella where he probably feels like he's being picked on. So <laughs> <laughs> so he handles it pretty yeah. well, but Brian, Brian's fantastic. I could not ask for a better person to learn from. I hope and dream to be the broker that Brian is one day. So. Is there a specific deal that you did or that you're working on that you can talk about to get a better understanding of what you do yeah. day to day? I, I personally love new development. And right now we're working on a project called Area 15, which is experiential, immersive retail development. What are the cross streets? That would be Desert Inn and the 15. Okay. So our client owns about 74 acres of land there. And they did a lease back to all of the industrial users and um, the office industrial and the residential. So it's basically from Palace Station over to Desert Inn is what they own. It's a large portfolio, and then they had this really great idea to build this concept that's never really been done before. So when it comes to leasing that project out, it's not like your cookie-cutter You're not getting deals. a nail salon and a CPA yeah, and a not, flower shop. Yeah, we're not looking for national tenants. We're looking for the coolest um, concepts. And once we find that cool concept, we have to make sure that there's not someone out in the world that's doing it better. So our client has literally flown to Japan for, wow. for concepts that we've found. 
This project is planning to be the first of its kind, and then they will, you know, replicate it around the world, which is really, really neat, too. But mostly it's millennial-driven. The idea is that every time that you go to Area 15 that you experience something different. With our experience on the Strip, we study tourism often, and millennials are spending money different than anyone before them. Less gambling, more on experiences, um, restaurants, shopping, all of those great things. But we've found, too, that millennials don't have a ton of income so uh, they might go big one day and go to a really nice dinner and go out to a nightclub um, but really they're looking for a bargain there so area 15 is not necessarily being developed to compete with the ship but to be an addition of something that you can go to and we're also targeting locals alike as well everybody that listens to this i'm assuming is mostly local and we have an international audience oh yeah international okay well international (laughs) audience if you don't know Las Vegas is funny where you're either a Henderson person or you're a Summerlin person. So Area 15 or being a in Boulder the, City person. Or a Boulder City person. But of course. it's like two of us. So but Area 15 is a center spot where I'm excited to, you know, say like. Have you let's signed go the first tenant? Yeah, Meow Wolf from Santa Fe is our first tenant. What is that? Meow Wolf. Meow Wolf? Yeah. It's like a purring ca- oh, so, purring wolf. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've never looked at it that way. <laughs> So what does Meow Wolf do? I have a tour after this meeting there, and I'm going to definitely use that. Um, Meow Wolf is an art installation in um, Santa Fe, New Mexico. Santa Fe, New Mexico has 78,000 people. They see 500,000 visitors a year. Basically, it's an old Victorian house there, and each room is an art installation. So it's instead of viewing a piece of art on a wall, you're walking through and experiencing the art. I like to describe it as if you were in Alice in Wonderland, you ate the cookie, you fell down the rabbit hole and like really liked it. So you just hung out there for a while. I know exactly what you're talking about because yeah. I have a four-year-old <laughs> daughter and I just read Alice in Wonderland to her last night. And she keeps asking me, why is she getting bigger? Why is she getting smaller? Yeah. So maybe I could take her to this place. Hopefully it's age it appropriate will, for it her. It is age appropriate. So that's our first anchor tenant. And then there's also a concert venue. We've hired somebody from Live Nation that will be curating our own events. And the other deals I can't really speak on, but nobody is local. But they're, um, they're fantastic. How I'm big excited. is this place? 160,000 square feet. So it's sizable. That's a Exciting. I'm really excited about that. Um, I want to talk more about you. You made a comment earlier that you've wanted to be a real estate broker ever since you were a little girl. What inspired that? My dad was a home builder growing up, and my mom is a residential realtor. She does mostly property management, but she's getting back into the sales game now that the market's turned around. So real estate was just always part of our our dinner conversation. I used to go into my mom's office when I was little and punch out those stupid magnets that you realtors send you with the calendar on them. You're like, you actually have to assemble all of those. So I would have blisters on my thumbs from <laughs> posting them. I tell her all the time now that it was child labor and she should be ashamed of herself. But So I was always around um, real estate. And it was really interesting when my mom's one of those people who keeps everything. So every art project, everything. And when I moved out of my parents' house, my mom sent me home with, or sent me off with two boxes that said Angelica's box on them. And they were basically all of my my art projects. And so I was working um, in real estate. I started off at Chicago Title. 
Um, when I was in college, I worked for um, Tina Lucero, who's a, a realtor too. Um, she uh, was a commercial escrow officer at the time. And I was just like, oh my gosh, I want to deal with commercial, not residential. And I thought that that was my first moment. But then I was moving and I saw these boxes again. And I'm like, let me open these up and look. And so uh, one of the first things that I pulled out was a thing from second grade. And it was, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And what I had written down was that I wanted to own malls so I could pick all of my favorite stores. <laughs> and while I don't own them yet, <laughs> wow, that is technically my job is to pick stores and to put them in place. So um, it's really funny. It's always been something that I've wanted to do. When I was in junior high and high school, I would always talk about being in real estate, mostly because of the fact that my mom never missed one of my soccer games growing up. She was always there. And so she had the ability to mm -hmm. design her schedule where she could still raise her kids. And that's really important to me. And it also, obviously, you know, commissions aren't, aren't bad. So, And that's probably what swayed me even more so to commercial was I remember I was in charge of doing the openings for commercial properties with Tina and I would have to deposit the checks and I was like this is insane this amount of money and so she Tina told me once she was like oh this was your aha moment you had like the aha moment and then from there I met a bunch of the Collier's boys from being in Tina's office and realized that I wanted to be on the sales side anyways escrow was really really boring and another woman who worked for Tina was already at Collier's and she's like, we have an entry level position. I was still in college. So I'm like, let's do it. And I was the receptionist there for three years. And then I worked for a broker for about two years there and then to ROI. And then to ROI. Yep. <laughs> so let's go back a little bit. I'm yeah. curious, describe what it was like around the dinner table when you were growing up. So my dad, we moved here because my dad got a job transfer. My dad was um, a home builder for Del Webb. So when we came here, you know, Anthem didn't exist. Um, Summerlin was barely existing. Um, and he was working on those projects. And I used to love to go to um, to his projects and mostly just play around in the in the model homes. Mm -hmm. But so my dad would come home and talk about I those things. I thought you were going to say play around in the dirt and on the tractors. Yeah. Uh, no, let's not get too ahead of ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> so playing in the model yeah. homes. Okay. So I'd play in the model homes, but just watching, you know, these things that, I remember at that point when my dad first came, the 215 didn't exist. It was like Mead Parkway. Um, Eastern went to T-Birds, which is right past like Richmar. And so there was just completely undeveloped. And now you drive down there and it's this whole other city almost. Um, so seeing that, which was where, you know, there's completely raw land and then what it can become was always really fascinating to me. And then my dad um, actually transitioned into more of the land development on the housing side. So then he got to do golf courses within the projects and that was really fun. Um, so learning, you know, those things, always having that being a conversation at dinner, probably really you know, made my mind wander when it came to real estate. And your siblings? Uh, my two sisters, um, they live in Reno. Um, one of them just graduated college this year. They both work in healthcare, which is interesting. Yeah. They are completely opposites of me, and I love them for that. Um, they're very, they're both free spirited, reincarnated hippies. And we could, <laughs> we have very, very little in common other than our parents, but they open my eyes to a world that I don't see, and I hope that I'm able to do the same for them. But they're, they're fantastic and on their own paths. Not are you anything in, in the family <laughs> business. Are you and your younger brother similar? Um, no. My little brother actually wants to be a Marine. Um, so 
he's definitely on his own pathway too. I don't honestly, I don't think any of us are very, very similar. We all have very different personalities for sure. But um, he just moved up to Reno. He's going to go there for a couple of years. If you enlist after getting an associate's degree, you enlist a little higher. So that is his plan. Um, While I admire everything he's trying to do, it scares the shit out of me, too. (laughs) So um, I'm happy that he is taking two years before he goes and enlists. Sounds like you grew up in a very tight-knit, very loving home. Yeah. Tight-knit community in Boulder City. Yeah. Um, my mom's side of the family is Italian, and uh, an Italian culture. We're loud and very close. We cook for you. We love you. We share wine with you. It's even better. <laughs> <laughs> so um, very, very close family. Um, I, my mom is my best friend. I adore her. I'm significantly older than my siblings. I'm 12 years older than my brother, six years older than my sister closest in age. Um, So I'm probably like a second mom to them more than a sibling, but watching them grow into the people that they are has been amazing too. And where does Lopez come from? Oh, that is, um, that's my my real father's last name. My, My dad, who I've been talking about, is actually my stepfather. He's raised me since I was two, so I don't refer to him as anything different. Um... Lopez is a is a last name for me. Unfortunately, I do not speak Spanish. No habla español. No, and having you know a good amount of listings in town and your phone number on them. <laughs> I've, um, oh, I see where this is going. Yeah, I've begged Brian and Jennifer. I'm like, please don't make me lead in this neighborhood because I'm not. Gonna, I spend more time telling people I don't speak Spanish than um, you know actually answering questions. So <laughs> it's great. <laughs> let's let's shift into takeaways. I deliberately didn't ask you the question that I ask everybody else. Yeah. Which is what one thing or event or person has defined or shaped you the most? Because I wanted to to have the opportunity to get to know you better and and understand how it was when you grew up, how what you do professionally, and now we can jump into that question. So, what defined or shaped you the most in your life? Um, So I'm a survivor of domestic violence, um, and I think that that moment has probably shaped who I am as an adult and has definitely changed my outlook on life. Domestic violence, you know, was not something I was raised in. It wasn't something that was prevalent in my household. Um, I come from a a pretty decent family. I won't say we're the best, (laughs) but they work for me, and, um, and it was never something that any statistic would say that I was destined to come into. And I wouldn't even say statistic. I would actually say any stereotype would say that I was destined to be a victim of domestic violence. In 2009, I met my ex-boyfriend. We dated for about three years. It didn't really... And at 2009, I also started working at Collier's. So I just started working at Collier's. We met this guy. Um, He was a professional fighter, which was interesting for me in the first place, but um, we dated for about a year and a half before anything really became abusive, Um, but there was red flags that I probably should have been able to see at the time, and now in retrospect you can see them, but you don't always see anything when it's right in front of your face. So getting out of that relationship was was really, really difficult. Uh, I think, you know, domestic violence is a community issue, and I have so many people in my support system that I can look back in retrospect now and credit them for me being here today. Um, my ex-boyfriend ended up pleading guilty to 22 gross felony charges. That was a three-year uh, court battle. And after those 22 
yeah. charges were specific to you? Um, yep, most of them. Um, and they range from strangulation, um, sexual assault, um, domestic battery, coercion, I mean, and multiple counts of mm-hmm. those things. I've experienced more things than most people could even fathom in their worst nightmares. And I think that that moment of one, escaping, um, and two, my involvement with Safe Nest um, has really turned a horrible, horrible situation for me into a very, very positive one. Um, to the point where now um, people often ask me, you know, if you could have not met him, would you just know? not do it. That's an interesting question. Yeah. And, um, I would still do it all over again. I think that I'm, I'm in a place to use my voice. I'm strong enough to use my voice and I don't carry any shame with the situation where it's easy to be shamed and disdain. And a lot of people are shamed and disdain that I'm, I'm able to help other people that are in a similar situation to me. And if I save one life, then it's been all worth it. So, so you met him in 2009. Yep. And you said it was about a year and a half before. Yeah, yeah that's really common. Um, so Wait, now. Wait, so hold on. A year and a half. There were flags leading up to it, but there was a year and a half before anything. Or you said the first signs of domestic violence. When you say, what does that mean? Yeah, so that the first signs violence, of domestic violence occurred. A lot of people think that domestic violence is just actual physical abuse, which is not true. There's mental abuse, there's emotional abuse, there's financial abuse. There's, you know, a lot of things that go into that. Um, controlling behavior was kind of prevalent in the beginning, but um, the more that I saw success in my career, I think the more that he felt intimidated, um, because the one thing that people don't know about domestic violence is it's a power control situation. So when somebody feels like they're losing control, they try to do things to regain control. One of the things that I like to point out when I do talk about this, it's like a toddler. You have small kids. Mm-hmm. So they cry, 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 you know, asking for your attention or asking you for whatever they may want. And then if they don't get it, then they kind of throw a tantrum. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they even become violent and will hit you or push you or be upset. It's very similar. Abusers really respond like children, um, mostly because of the cycle of abuse that they were probably abused as children. Mm-hmm. So their mentality never matured after that. And you know, then they start to use their force and their power to try to regain power over you. So the more success that I was seeing, um, the more extreme the abuse was becoming. What was the first indication? I mean, he was definitely controlling. And, you know, being in commercial real estate, I'm I'm a minority being a female in, mm-hmm. in our industry. And working with all men definitely made him uncomfortable. Um, so, you know, there would be times where if I didn't answer my phone, he would just show up at my office. And then, you know, I was always accused of sleeping with everybody. And that didn't, wasn't just in my industry. That mm-hmm. was, you know, a bartender or a waiter or something. So those controlling behaviors were the beginning for sure. And that starts as psychological and emotional? Yeah, definitely psychological and emotional. Um, the first time of abuse... And like, it wasn't, it was, he like pushed me into a wall because he thought that I was, um, flirting with somebody else. And then. Is this in public? Yeah. This was at at a nightclub, the good old bank nightclub that just, Mm. just closed. Um, (laughs) and then we went home and, um, he actually strangled me to unconsciousness and I woke up and I mean, this is really gruesome, but, um, I woke up and he was raping me and then, um, then he strangled me to unconsciousness again. And in those moments, you know, when statistics show that 
if your abuser strangles you, then your chances of being murdered are incredibly high. Like that's that for us um, that work on the advocacy mm-hmm. end for victims, um, that's that's a huge, huge like that's almost you're like at the last steps of before death. So it escalated pretty quickly from the push to yeah, yeah, for being sure, strangled, unconscious, for sure. And then there's a million reasons that relationship continued and mostly just being fearful of not knowing where he was, um, was huge for me. What do you mean by that? I never wanted to be blindsided by him. Um, so I felt like if I kept him close, then I at least would know when I had to experience him instead of being out in public and not knowing where he was and then him attacking me. And those were actual fears. And he's done, he had done multiple things to me in public where nobody did anything. So it was just kind of at the time that was my... So you felt helpless. Oh, incredibly helpless, yeah. And I didn't want to admit to the world that this was my reality. Why? Um, I'm, I have a, a lot of personality. Um, I don't fit any stereotype of a domestic violence victim. And um, when it comes to stereotypes, I mean, I deal with victims on, on a weekly basis with SafeNest, and there, there is no stereotype. But for me, I didn't want to be viewed as being weak. Um, I was coming up in my career, and I... I was trying really hard to, you know, keep up with the boys and I didn't want anybody to look at me and think that because of what I went through that I wasn't going to be able to perform in a in in my work or that I wasn't strong enough to be there. And um hmm. mostly I didn't want my family to know. They didn't raise me to ever be accepting of any sort of, you know, treatment that way of of that way. So hiding that Um, was really important to me. I didn't want my sisters to think that that was acceptable behavior. I didn't want my mom to know those details. So hiding it became more of a thing. Why wouldn't you want your mom to know? You said she's your best friend. She is. And I just don't think anybody needs to hear those gruesome details about their child. So where it's funny then, and that's what domestic violence does, is it kind of shames you into this corner where you feel alone. And by all means, I was never alone. I have one of the best support systems I could ever ask for. I'm blessed in having multiple best friends. Um, My best friends joke around all the time that I'm best friend promiscuous because I have plenty. Um, (laughs) So I, um, you know, but I I was never physically alone, but I felt like in my head that, I needed to do this on my own, and I needed to fix it on my own, and um, and then try to move forward. But that trying to fix it on my own turned into a year and a half of just times that would just keep escalating and escalating and escalating. And finally, once my ex-boyfriend got um, or was arrested, um, I mean, the abuse was daily at that point. There were times when I would be at the office, and I developed stomach ulcers from the stress. I so so skinny I was covered in bruises all the time I would at like 3 p.m. every day I would get these horrible stomach pains because I knew I had to go home soon and I just didn't want to deal with that being but I just didn't know how to get out of it and um, when you're so immersed in that behavior it's hard to think about an escape plan it's hard to think about you know who can help me without him hurting them who is, you know, open to helping me. There's a lot of judgment that comes with uh, being a victim of domestic violence. The question always immediately is, you know, 
why doesn't she just leave? I tried to leave multiple times. He set a dress that I was wearing on fire and poured vodka over me and tried to light me on fire. So like, you know, there's there's things that go into that where it's just not black and white. There's a ton of gray area and working with victims now and going through my own story, the best thing you can do is empower a victim to make that decision for herself because she needs to make that decision. If not, my family and friends, it's their job to say that they love me and that I deserve better. But it's also my job, too, to make sure that I don't hurt them. And that was, um, that was a really big concern for me. When you said that abuse was daily. Yeah. So what did that look like? I mean, from throwing things to pushing me into walls. I and mean, now this is in the, in the home, I'm guessing? Yeah, this is at home. Um, pulling my hair, dragging me, rape. He was really smart never to hurt my face. Um, while I was working at Collier's, I was also promo modeling. So, you know, that was a problem then that would be easily shown. But everyone started to catch on pretty quickly once the abuse was daily. Um, I had a broker specifically at Collier's um, come up to me once, and he just said, he was like, look, I'm not buying your store anymore. Like, I know something's going on. And then when you're ready, my what, door's What story? Open. The I uh, fell down the stairs story? Oh, uh, yeah. Like, I was always, like, at the gym. You know, he was a fighter, so I would say, like, you know, we worked out together. Mm. So, like, grappling. I don't know. I would make up all these things. This is to explain away your bruises? Yeah. I always had bruises on my arms and my legs. And that broker said, you know, I know when you're ready to to talk and when you're when you need help, like, my door's open and you... You come to me and I'm, I will help you. But it took a while for me to even do that because I, I was also in denial that this was really what I was living. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's the cycle of abuses. There's the the horrible actual violence. And then there's, they call it like the honeymoon phase where everything becomes better. And then they're promising that these things won't happen. And, I mean, my ex-boyfriend on the outside before the abuse was becoming prevalent everybody thought was fantastic he sent me flowers all the time he brought me lunch he did all these great things and like and people would be like oh I wish I had a boyfriend like that like oh no you don't I promise but um and then it also became a point where when he would send me flowers it was like an apology um so the more flowers I received the, the worse that it was getting um I don't know if we want to start right now. There's when you and I talked about doing this, we sort of talked. We talked about I would ask you all the naive and ignorant questions that come up around domestic violence. Yeah, um, there's you, plenty. Yeah, and you said, "Hey, this is great," and the the two or three that you came up with, here's another five. Yeah. So I want to be clear first to the audience that I'm not doing this to be cruel or insensitive, <laughs> but really to better understand this issue and. Um, the psychology around it, but not just for the victim, but also for the community around the victim, which, you, you know, you talked a lot about that already. So if it's okay, yeah. do you want to? Let's go. I can ask you some of these naive and ignorant questions that come up. Yeah. Now, the first one is, it's very clear. You're, you're a normal person. You grew up in a loving home. You're successful. You're educated. Uh, you're good looking. How did this happen to you? Yeah, I can't tell you how many times people have asked me that. Um, (laughs) And I would like to say that the best way that I've summed it up is I have a great support system because I'm a lover. I I love people. And 
I loved my ex-boyfriend. This is the Italian in you with the yeah, wine and stuff. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. Um, I loved my ex-boyfriend, and I knew that he had issues, and I accepted him for those things. And I desperately wanted to help him. I wanted to fix him so badly. I just didn't realize that by trying to help him and fix him, I was sacrificing my myself at the time. Um, you know, I had a, a good friend once tell me, she's like, you know, your heart got you into this, and your heart got you out. Because then you started to love yourself again. And, and there was a point where, you know, I wouldn't say that I didn't love myself. People always immediately go to, you're so confident, I can't believe this happened to you. Mm-hmm. Um, this happens all over the place. In Nevada, it's one in three women. So one in three. One in three women will be affected by domestic violence. When I first became public about my story with social media, I cannot tell you the amount of women that reached out to me um, directly and said, you know, this happened to me at this time, and I'm so happy that you're using your voice to share this. I was never strong enough to say, or, you know, I never wanted to deal with the shame that came with being a victim. And and there's a lot of shame, you know, um, as a society, we're a victim-shaming society. We always ask what the victim did instead so that, of what... that's the next question yeah. that comes up, right? <laughs> yeah. What did you do to deserve this? Yeah, I had so many people like, well, why'd you make him mad? Like, what did you do to make him mad? I'm like, well, I... I took a breath today is, is like the answer. I mean, that could range from anything. It's a weird thing to ever express, but um, it's something that victims and survivors will totally relate to. I could feel his negative energy before he even walked in the door. Um, I could just hmm. feel it. Like, I mean, I just, I knew when something bad was going to happen. And I mean, it's it's one of those things where, I don't think that a victim does anything to deserve domestic violence whatsoever. And when Why somebody, is that a question? Though? Yeah, and when someone asks that, that's exactly what you're saying. But even if I did do something, what exactly, what action would deserve a reaction of being abused by a professional fighter? Like, exactly. Or like, not I mean, a trained fighter, just ex- a or just normal by a human person. being. I mean, to, for someone to become violent um, with something... But um, what would cause a... No- seemingly normal person to ask somebody what did you do to make him mad or what did you do to deserve this why is it on the victim yeah i think that they don't understand what they're asking you know i think that's the question that pops in because our society is just trained to say you know what'd she do but in all honesty you're the what you're asking me is a question where if there was an answer is that ever good enough i mean what could a what could I have possibly done to deserve that? Um, I mean, we can list out you know scenarios. I still don't think any action deserves that. So, so you're a normal person. How did this happen? What did you do to make him mad? Another question: Why didn't you leave? Yeah, um, that's probably the most prominent question that a lot of um, people just don't understand. It seems so black and white. You know, just leave. Um, there's so many things that go into it. Um, like I said, I, I tried to leave multiple times. Um, he would come into my office. He would threaten my office. He's threatened brokers that I've worked with. He's um, threatened my family, my friends. Um, I mean, I had friends that were scared to hang out with me at one point. So So that deepens the isolation. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's what the abuser thrives on. Um, and so then you're just in fear. And, I mean, there were times that I would try to leave. And like I said, he, he legitimately tried to light me on fire. So when you say tried to leave, what does that mean? 
Um, having conversations of like, you know, we're not getting along. Like maybe we just need to go in separate ways. So this isn't like run out the back door. This is oh, you're no, trying I tried to run out the back door plenty of times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no. I mean, it ranges from all of those things. Two days before he was arrested, I tried to run out of the house, um, and he slammed my hand into the door. Um, he's obviously physically stronger than mm-hmm. I am. He's, and trained at it. Yeah, so um, I broke my finger um, when he slammed my finger in the door, and then when I actually got away, um, I ran out the door naked with a T-shirt in my hand and my and my car keys and ran down the street to my car um, and drove away not knowing, you know, what that was going to be or or if that really was the end. And um, we like a statistic is that a victim will leave eight times before she actually leaves for good. Wow. Um, and I didn't have any kids. Um, he lived in my house. Uh, a lot of people like to believe that. Um, public service announcement, um, up-and-coming professional fighters do not make any money. So um, <laughs> that was always the thing, too, is people thought that I was like a gold digger dating this professional athlete, and I, that was hilarious. Um, it was the opposite. Yeah, and so I, you know, it wasn't like it was his house. Um, he had all this financial control over me. It was just a, a fear tactic of... Mm-hmm. He knows where I work. I've worked way too hard to get to this point in my career to let this person ruin that for me. So I was trying to protect that as much as possible and protect the people that I cared about. So we talked about some of the questions that other people pose. I'm curious about questions that come up for you. Uh, For example, when you're running out of the house, naked, T-shirt in hand, and your car keys, and you finally get to the car and you lock the door and you turn on the engine... What's going through your head at that moment? Um, where do I go? And at that moment, um, I had confided in a couple of friends, and I, I, I drove to her house, and her husband was actually my um, ex-boyfriend's manager at the time. So I, I told her, he's going to kill me. Like, he, he's going to kill me. You were um, convinced? The reason I left that day is because... It was a Sunday, a Sunday early morning. My body was too weak to fight. I had just went through one of the the worst of the fights that I had gone through with him um, two nights prior. My finger was broken. You um, say fight. Are you fighting back at this point? Yeah. Oh, always fighting back, um, which is... Does it make it worse? Uh, yes, um, but did it save my life? Probably. Um, so... Oh, you think it did save your life? 100%. I mean, that day it did. Um, so knowing that I, (laughs) I, the, so the fight that happened two days prior to me Mm -hmm. running away, um, he slammed my finger in the, in the door. He kicked me in the ribs. Um, I, my whole body was just battered. And so when he came home that day, I just was just like, I can't fight you today. Like, I just can't. Like, I physically cannot do this. And um, we had this routine of going um, to church and going to my parents' house for Sunday dinner. And so I just asked him point blank. I'm like, so this is what you're going to do. You're going to beat the shit out of me, rape me. Then we're going to go to church. And then we're going to go to my mom's house for dinner. And you're going to stare my family in the eyes like nothing has happened. And he looked straight back at me and said, absolutely not. I'm killing you today. And oh, I wow. felt it in in my bones. And He was serious. Yeah. And I, I believed him in every 
every essence of me believed him. And that's, um, I was bawling, obviously, and I couldn't breathe. And so I just kept asking if he would let me um, blow my nose. And he finally agreed to just letting me blow my nose because I kept telling him, like, I'll do whatever you want. Just, you know, let me blow my nose so I can breathe. And so I walked in the bathroom, and then he went to the other bathroom, and then I just saw my opportunity, and I ran. Um, and once I ran, um, he went looking for me. Um, he tried to attack two other women on the street, um, and they called the police, and he was arrested. And then I got a phone call from the police, but I was nervous because I didn't believe that it was actually them. And they said, we have your boyfriend here. He's been looking for you. He's really concerned about you. And I'm like, oh, my God, this dude just called the police and told them that <laughs> I ran away. Like, this is insane. And you so did that? No, it was because they had already arrested him. But that's what he was saying he was doing. He thought that these other women were me. But it turns out, oh, one, I neither see. of them looked like me. One was old enough to be my grandmother, and the other one was similar in age to me. So um, he was crazy. Like, he was absolutely Clearly. insane. So if it wasn't me, it was going to be someone else. And I honestly needed that moment to realize that no matter what I did to try to fix this man, he was always going to be an abuser um, until he fixed himself, if that was possible. So that was, you know, I asked the question, what went through your mind when you got into your car and you locked the door? And it was, you know, where do I go? I'm curious, you know, going back to the timeline, you met him in 2009. Uh, the first sign of, of domestic violence was a year and a half after. You lived in a domestic violence relationship for a year and a half. Yeah. When was the first time that you vocalized the abuse to somebody else? Probably the summer before that, to my best friend, Emily. Um, I told her that, you know, I was just really, we were broken up at the time, and I told her that I was really fearful because I knew that he was going to do all these things that he had said. And at that time, there was only that one incident of the strangulation that I had to base it off of, and he was on pretty good behavior for months after but I was just like, no, I know this is what's going to happen. And then I, for some reason, thought that it was a better idea to have him closer than apart mm -hmm. because he would show up at things that he knew I was doing, like my work. Um, and so I was trying to, like, calm like, or diffuse the situation, which is very common in, in these situations. Um, but I was just thinking, like, if I could diffuse it, then maybe I could not have it interfere with everything else I have going on. But it did, and it, it was really it was not fun. But, yeah, so that was the first time that I ever vocalized it. Another thing I'm curious about is why wouldn't you just go to the police? Yeah, so that's also a question, too. You know, <laughs> it's funny. There was many a times that after participating with the police, I questioned myself why I did because... Might say that again? <laughs> so working um, with the police, you, you questioned why you went to them? Yeah, um, for sure. You know... The law is funny. Um, the law protects abusers before it protects victims. To take you through that synopsis as quickly as possible, when I had to first make my first statement. Well, so we'll back up just a little bit. So that happens the day I ran away. He gets arrested, and I don't know what to do. I'm terrified that he thinks that I called the police because I know that that's going to infuriate him. Mm -hmm. And so so, I, so... so your mindset is, if I call the police, I'm putting myself more at risk. Yeah, okay. for sure. So because you can only be held for so long on a charge like that. You have to prove it, which is even more difficult. 
Mm-hmm. Charge like what? Domestic violence. You know, when there's thousands of domestic violence calls, um, Nevada is, is very, very high in domestic violence. I'll talk more about some programs that Safe Nest is doing to okay. help with that. But, you know, so if I make that phone call, he might not get arrested. He could just stay there after they come and warn him. Um, stay at the house. Yeah. Your house. Because his belongings are there and we, all of us real estate people. Yeah. <laughs> we you can't know just the take them away. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so he had a right to be in my house because his, his stuff was there. And so those things ran through my head. Mostly... If I couldn't prove that this was happening, does he get let go and then want to kill me because mm. I, I've worsened this situation? Um, so after I actually, um, I didn't participate with the police in the beginning. The police called me and they asked me if I was okay and I said yes. And they said, are you sure? And I said yes. Because I, one, did not know if they were talking to me on the phone right next to him. And I didn't want anything to mm-hmm. correlate back. Um, I was blessed that two other women called the police. And I was like, okay, if I can ma- like manage that, then this is good. So um, the next day, um, the friend that I went to for and uh, what that I drove to, she made me have lunch with um, another survivor of domestic violence who was in marriage for 11 years that was violently abusive. And the last thing I wanted to do was go to lunch. I was honestly packing up his stuff to get it out of my house so he didn't have a place to come back to. And then I was trying to figure out, you know, where I go and if that means that I need to move out of the city. And I went to this lunch because she kept begging me to. And the first thing that this woman said to me is that um, he's going to kill you. And deep down inside, you know it. It just hasn't happened yet. Those words just really stuck to me. And she said, what you're going to do, because he was still calling me from jail at this time. She was like, the next time he calls, you are going to say it. So it's recorded that you want nothing to do with this relationship anymore and that you cannot tolerate the treatment and you are going to say what has been done. And then you are never going to pick up that phone call again. And she said, in a year from now, we're going to meet at the same place um, for lunch. And we will talk about how it's been a year since you've spoken to him. And I was terrified. Um, so as soon as I was walking out, he called. Um, that's another thing. I'm Can really you say who the survivor is or do you no, rather not? Okay. I would rather not. That's fine. Um, so I um, I'm was incredibly sur- surprised on how many calls um, – inmates actually get they get a ton like because he was calling me all all the time throughout the night everything Mm. um so that happened and then so um, that whole one phone call thing is a myth no that one yeah you guys (laughs) have plenty of phone calls um (laughs) so don't worry um but but, um so then the the next day i went into the office and that broker who told me that when i was ready to come back i went straight back to his office um tears pouring down my face I said I don't know where to begin I don't know what to do but my timeline of doing something quickly is needs to happen now because right now he's in jail I don't know if he's going to make bail Um, he hasn't been before the court yet like I need to do something and um, he sat me in the conference room um, made a phone call and then I was blessed and fortunate to have the district attorney on the he phone. He made a phone call? Yeah. The to the district did. attorney. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, and then so you know I have there are so many victims, especially in our city, who have it significantly worse than I do when it comes to a support system like that. Um, I don't know very many people who have the ability to walk into someone's office and then that person be able to get the district attorney on the phone within minutes. So um, if someone doesn't have that, what would be the first call? I mean, you would have to start participating with the police and make a statement. 
which is terrifying. Um, so the district attorney then told me that that was the next thing. He gave me a cell phone number, said that, you know, any friend of Spoker is a friend of mine. You call me any time of the day, any time of the night, and I will help you. Um, but you need to go down to Metro and make a statement. So I went down to Metro, and the two Metro officers that I met with were fantastic. They wanted to know more about my ex-boyfriend's fighting career than anything that was happening to me. Oh, so you're being sarcastic when you say oh, yeah, they're yeah. fantastic. I'm, okay. I'm a very sarcastic individual. No, and I know. Yeah. I just want to <laughs> understand that. To, to be clear. So you go in to, to, to give your statement, and these guys are asking more about the career. Yeah, they wanted to know how many fights he's had, what's his record, what's his specialty. And I'm just staring at them like, I'm telling you the most vulnerable yeah. thing that has ever happened to me that I never planned on sharing with anybody. Mm -hmm. And now I'm sharing them with two strangers who are more concerned about what my Mm ex-boyfriend's fight record was than what actually happened to me. I had to go to the police station multiple times because then my ex-boyfriend did make bail. And I think that that's probably a a good start to start really talking about. Um, In my story, there's multiple people in our community who helped me. And... Domestic violence in Las Vegas is a community issue. And if it's a community issue, it's a community solution. Um, I was blessed and fortunate to have the support system that I do. Um, and there are many of people who stand out in my mind when, when getting help. Um, but when he made bail, he didn't make bail for a couple months later, um, I had confided in um, two of my really good friends who you know very well, who are um, Amy and Jared Katz. I'm getting emotional. That's right. Um, so, um, sorry. <laughs> no need to be sorry. <laughs> um, but Amy and um, Jared Katz are, well, they're family. Um, sorry. So, um, Amy, Amy and I worked together at Collier's. Um, most people who know my relationship with the cats is now always think that Jared and I were friends first. Um, but Amy and I were friends at Collier's. Um, Amy has taught me about every expensive thing that I love in my life. So <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I love that family um, just as much as I love my own. And when um, everything happened, Amy was actually very, very much pregnant. She was nine months pregnant. And um, her and I kept in touch. Um, Obviously, she wasn't at work, so my ex-wife didn't know anything about her. And um, after he was arrested, she had ironically reached out to me. Um, She was like, hey, do you want to go on a walk? Because we lived in the same neighborhood. And she was trying to get the baby to drop. So (laughs) I was like, yeah, let's go on a walk. Oh, so she's really pregnant. Yeah, really pregnant. So, um, So we go on a walk, and I just tell her everything. And she had suspected some things. Um, and then so we had those conversations. And they were about to have their daughter, Emma. Um, and because my ex was in jail, I was really, really adamant against getting a restraining order. Um, just because I didn't. One, I felt like that was me admitting that I was a victim. And I was having a really hard time with that. And I went to breakfast with Amy and Jared right before they went and checked into the hospital and we had to talk about you know where everything was going um I was kind of uncomfortable to have the conversation with Jared because I didn't really know Jared that well other than he was also a broker and Amy's husband and did then the, did the male factor have any 
Can you know, you do with it or no? It is not my favorite breakfast. They really like this place, but I'm a big cracked egg person. <laughs> so, um, and this was egg and I, no offense, egg and I, sorry. Um, <laughs> but um, so we um, went our separate ways and I got a text message from Amy later saying, you can't meet my daughter until you get a restraining order. And I was like, oh shit. Like this is this is real, and actually, it wasn't daughter at the time. They um they didn't choose to know what the sex of the baby was until Emma was born, and she's like, you just you can't you have to you have to protect yourself first. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, please call Safe Nest, and I was like, fuck, if I have to call Safe Nest, that means I'm a victim, mm-hmm. and I have to start really dealing with this. And so. Amy is in labor and <laughs> I'm like waiting and waiting and waiting and I called Safe Nest at one in the morning um, that night before Emma was born um, and asked them what do I do um, they have a 24 hour hotline and the lady gave me you know all the information I needed to to get a temporary um, protective order and I it was the first time that I actually had like a path of what mm-hmm. I needed to do and God, do I wish I would have called them sooner because they have, I mean, they have so many tools um, that are, are very, very helpful. Um, so I, I got the restraining order. I was able to meet Emma. It was fantastic. And then um, my ex-boyfriend makes bail and I can no longer stay in my house. I am now... Um, Out of fear for your own safety? Safety and fear. So um, statistically, this is the most lethal um, part of a victim leaving is when a victim leaves. Um, that's normally when victims die. Um, and so I was terrified and I, you know, they were always checking in with me anyways, like on what they could do. And Safe I, nest? Um, no, Amy and Jerry. The cats is okay. Yeah. So they were like, well, what do you, you know, what's going on? I'm like, he's making bail. I actually was found out that he was making bail when I was in ICSE LA or San Diego. Um, it was held at San Diego, and I was at the Donahue Schreiber party. So this is a, a commercial real estate conference yeah. for, for the retail world. You're in Sorry. San Diego. I'm in San Diego um, talking to a couple of people, and I get a text message from my ex-boyfriend's sister that he's making bail and that her and her father are advising me to do everything I can to protect myself. Wow. And so that's from his family. Yeah. So I um, call my, my business partner at the time um, and tell him, I'm just going to meet you at the airport. Um I don't want to be at this party anymore. I'm a mess. He's getting out on bail. I don't know what I'm going home to. I like. I need to figure all this out. So I called or I text Amy and Jared and let them know. And um, they're both well. Immediately, you're staying at our house. And um, so I go home, get my stuff, and so it wasn't even a question. Yeah, and I go to Amy and Jared's house, and I've never been so scared in my life. The next two months that he was out on bail, um, I lost my mind. Um, going places and looking over your shoulder. Um, He violated my restraining order several times. I had to go down to the police station and write several more reports. Um, Once he wrote me an email, an apology email. Um, And so I took that down and the lady that took my report was like, well, why are you, why are you making this report? He's just apologizing. I'm like, well, because he tried to kill me. Like that, that's why, because this isn't a real. So what does the restraining order say? He can't contact you at all? Yeah, he can't contact me at all. And he can't be within a certain amount of feet of the places that I listed. Um, so I didn't list the cat's house. Obviously I didn't want him to know where that was. Um, but I listed my own home and my office. Um, the property managers at Hughes Center were fantastic. Um, they had a copy of my restraining order, a 
picture of him, and security would have me call them on my way into the office, meet me in the parking garage, walk me into the office, and walk me out every night. Um, so that's one side of the spectrum to community response, which yes. is you have a restraining order. Yeah. Let's help you as much as we can Yeah, because to make you feel like you have a restraining order. The other side, which is interesting, you're saying you're going down to the police station to say, look, he contacted me. Yeah. It shouldn't matter what the email says or doesn't say. Yeah. It's he contacted me. What are you going to do about it? And yeah. the, the response is, oh, he's just apologizing. Yeah, exactly. So, you wow. know, it's, again, a community solution. So, um, I had so many people, you know, at Collier's we had a, a plan that if he came in, like what we would do, I was never to be For there. the whole office? Um, the reception and, and so who, office. So who needed to yeah, know, so to speak. Okay. Yeah, so office management. But most of the office knew what I was going through. Just so, so everyone knows, the Collier's is probably a 60, 80 person operation. Yeah. At the time we had so like So it's not like, you know, you know, a uh, mom and pop, four or five people are there. No, this is a big, a big, big firm. Um, and they're fantastic. I have nothing but great things to say about them and the boys there that really, really stood by my side and, and continue to. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're, they're great. But so, you know, I had all of these things in play and I would drive home to Amy and Jared's house a different way every time. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I was just terrified. Um, he would come to functions that I was at. Um, also, with Collier's, we used to participate in this Rose uh, Regatta boat race at Lake mm-hmm. Las Vegas. And um, he posted photos on social media of me racing this boat, um, like, as a scare tactic. Like, he just didn't care. Mm-hmm. Like, he didn't care what was going to happen at this point. Um, so I, I was terrified, and I was in a really, really dark place. I had lost all hope in humanity at that moment when – you look in someone's eyes and they're able to kill you. You really question, you know, are you actually an, a human being? Like, because I can't hurt other people that way. Wow. But going home to the cat's house, um, I was responsible for the dream feed, which if you've had a kid <laughs> <laughs> and... I probably talk more about the dream feed and I have no children um, than most parents do, but it is like a godsend. So the dream feed is, is you like go and wake up the baby. You don't wake up the baby, but you feed the baby more like breast milk or Mm -hmm. formula while the baby is sleeping to ensure that the baby stays asleep all night. And Emma was fantastic. Emma, I mean, both of the cats as kids are great. They're amazing. How old is Emma at this point? She will be six this year, which is heartbreaking. Um, but she was uh, she was days old um, at that um, at that point. She's okay. So this is I'm just trying to understand. So he got out of jail and for a two month period. Yeah. So she, you're going so, through everything oh, you no, just so talked was, about yeah, with the restraining no, right. order and everything. So about she was two months old. Yeah. Okay. About two months old when and, I moved in. And you got the the pleasure of doing the dream feed. Yeah, I was always up late anyways, and so it, it seemed like that could be my contribution. So what hour is the dream feed happening? Um, like 10, 9, 10. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> I would go in, and um, it was just this, like, very peaceful, serene moment where you're, you know, holding this baby that has not been influenced by the world that we live in whatsoever, and you're feeding them because that's all that they need is to be fed and, mm-hmm. and cared for. And while on outside of that room, my life is absolute chaos. But inside of my inside that room, it's the only moment of sanity that I have, where I'm safe, and I'm looking at this newborn baby, well, two-month-old baby, and you know, reminding myself that I need to see this out. So girls like her are protected forever from this guy. So I, um, you know, Emma gave me so much purpose and. She continues to 
I tear up anytime I talk about mm-hmm. her. Um, <laughs> I'm tearing up too. It's great. <laughs> um, she continues to be a, a huge, huge light in my life. So she's been with me through through the, the darkest of days. And, and there were moments too where Amy and Jared were fantastic when I'd be having a bad day. Um, I lived with them for a few months and then I finally went and got my own place um, and moved out again once my ex went back into jail. Why did and, he go back to jail? Because um, he violated the restraining order. So, you know, all those moments that I had to go back down. So to, which violation yeah. triggered him going back to jail um, finally? It wasn't the, the email. It wasn't the posting the pictures clearly. Well, it was all of them. So once you violate the restraining order, then you're, you immediately go back to, the, back to jail. They just have to find you. Um, and he was staying in a motel about a, a mile from my new house where he wasn't supposed to know mm-hmm. that I lived there. Um, but so you think somehow he found out somehow? He found out. Wow. Yeah, I think it's really convenient. Um, but... Then the court starts, um, and court hmm. is hell. I would go, if I had to relive moments in my story of domestic violence, I would relive the moments of physical abuse over the court system. Um, is this a sarcastic statement, or are you being no, serious? No, this is 100% serious. Um, it The court system messed with my mind so much because you have to say everything the, first, the way that you said it the first time, or they'll say that your story's inconsistent and throw it out. So I became obsessed with my story of what mm. my statement was. And I would read it every single night over and over and over again to make sure that I didn't mess up and say, you know, oh, he pushed me and then he threw me to the ground. And then and when really he threw me to the ground and then picked me up and pushed me. So, like, you know, they're just waiting for those things. I had over 27 vacated court dates in three years. What does that mean? They schedule a court date, and you get ready to go, and then, like, two days before, they say, oh, the defense isn't ready, so we're asking for an mm-hmm. extension. And then they extend it. And what does that do to you? Oh, it, it made me lose my mind. I was, like, constantly just living in stress and anxiety. Um, so I, I so totally... To, I mean, you're doing all this emotional, mental, stressful yeah. preparation to read your story, get it accurate. You're working up to the moment, and then it's vacated. Yeah. And that happened 27 times. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was not bad. that you're counting. No, I counted. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I took a leave of absence from work because I was not able to think about anything um, other than my court case. So um, as you're healing physically, so yeah. to speak, you're just starting a new journey of mental emotional abuse. and <laughs> mental abuse. For sure. Yeah. And um, it was bad. I, and so, so the the power dynamic that you talked about earlier continues. He's still winning. Yeah. Yeah. He's still controlling me, and he's still winning for sure. And now I'm walking away from the one thing that I've worked hard for, and that's work, and um, and taking nine yeah. months to try to figure out how to work so the, without it tarnishing my career. The picture you drew in second grade. Yeah. <laughs> that's coming to life now. Yeah, and now you're I'm you're losing you know, that too. Exactly. So now I'm I'm losing everything that I've worked hard for as well. And so I took that that time off and there were some really really dark days where I didn't get out of bed. How much um, time did you take? 9 months. Yeah, I took a, a 9 month leave of absence and you know, Amy and Jared were there through a lot of it and Amy would come and force me to get out of bed and come around and run errands and then I would get a phone call like, "Can you come babysit Emma?" And be like, "Yeah, yes, I'll come babysit Emma." And mm-hmm. like, and but really, like that was the best therapy that I could have ever asked for. Um, they, Emma's amazing. She is absolutely one of the brightest lights in my life. Um, I love her brother too. Um, I that family is, they're special. So, 
this is a great point that we can shift into safe nest and go deeper there yeah. if you'd like. I've got one big takeaway that I want to talk about, and I'm going to ask you. You posted something on Facebook. Mm. <laughs> uh, it looks like it was um, maybe a year ago, two years ago. Uh, if you're okay reading it, yeah, and then we'll we'll close out. Sure. So you, you know, going back to the story, you uh, escaped. He's in jail. You were forced by one of your friends to meet with a survivor who, it sounds like cemented in your mind, you're, he's going to kill you. Yep. And he, he, she gave you at least your next step, which is take the, take the call, make the statement so it's recorded, and never answer it again. And in a year, you and I will sit down. Yeah. And then you were ready to talk yep. to the broker who said, whenever you're ready, please come, come talk. And you were ready, so you went to him which gave you the next step and maybe sense of some comfort to talk with the district attorney. Mm-hmm. And then the Katzes and Emma came into your life, gave you a greater purpose. Yep. Um, and somewhere in between there is Safe Nest. Yeah, that's Jared too. Um, so Jared obviously was seeing my downfall of it just really taking control of my life. Um, and he kept asking me to meet with our mutual friend, Ray Lucero. I, I knew of Ray because I was in Brokerage World, and he was in our office um, often. And I had no idea that he, you know, his involvement was mm-hmm. safeness at the time. And um, so I finally agreed because Big Brother Jared kept asking me, like, did you call Ray yet? Did you talk to Ray? And then finally Ray just reached out to me. Um, so I was like, okay, I will go and talk to Ray. So Ray and I met at a Starbucks, and um, we ended up talking for hours. Um, he told me, you know, his story of his sister and, um, and, you know, was offering, you know, if there's anything that I could do to help. And I said, honestly, the only thing that I really want to do right now is help somebody else in, in my place. Um, that woman that I met with the day after helped me, and I just want to save someone else's life. I mean, you're not even done. No, not You're, even like, close. in the middle of the next phase of yeah, it. And not you, even And you're to shifting done. to, I want to help somebody else. Yeah, I felt like that would be the best way for me to channel them all of this emotion mm-hmm. into, into something. Um, I can speak with passion. I still sometimes tear up. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that I can be relatable to. And I can also make somebody feel that they think that they're the stereotype and they can look at me and say, she's not and it still happened to her, so I'm okay. And um, that's really important to me. So Ray and I discussed, you know, what my involvement would be. And he was like, do you want to be, you know, do you want to get on the board? Like, and like, I'd love that. And then we figured out that, you know, I'm not supposed to be on the board until I'm, mm. you know, resolved right. in this moment where I wouldn't need to use their services. So I'm like, well, let me volunteer. So I started volunteering and I worked with a group that would go to the juvenile detention center and talk to young women there. And we would share these stories because a lot of them are already in pimp and like hooker situations at that young of an age and obviously domestic violence wow. is very very um prominent in in that so, so when you say stereotype of domestic violence is that the images are those the images that come to mind you know i think that when you think of a stereotypical victim of domestic violence at society it's easy to say that you know they're timid and soft-spoken and um, mm-hmm. you know, don't have a lot going for themselves okay. and that they just need this abuser in their life. And that's the, that's why they're getting abused. Um, I think that's what, um, stereotypes say. Okay. So, um, we start talking to these girls about healthy dating because the, 
the only way to fix domestic violence is to break the cycle. And to break the cycle, you have to break it at adolescence. And you have to show people that even if you're being raised in an abusive home, that it's not, you don't need to become a victim and you don't need to become mm. an abuser. You can make a decision to break that. Are there statistics for children that grow up in an abusive home of oh, them yeah. becoming abusers too? Yeah, very, very Even if strong. they're not abused? Most, just m- most people who are a victim of child abuse are abusers or victims. Um, I will not misquote the statistic, but there is a strong statistic. I am happy to give it back to <laughs> you, but it, it's really strong. Um, so, well, you talked about a pattern. It, yeah. Oh no. I see what you're saying. Yeah. There, there's definitely a pattern. So I meet with Ray. We talk. We figure out. I'm going to, you know, volunteer. I volunteer for a year, and I'm like, no. Um, there's so many things that I want to do for Safe Nest. Um, and one, I need everyone to know that Safe Nest exists because I'm running into more and more people that need our services and are surprised that I was mm-hmm. a victim and are reaching out to me. And nobody knows that this organization, which mm-hmm. is the largest, most comprehensive nonprofit in Nevada that's devoted to domestic violence, that's how little domestic violence is spoken about in our community. So I was like, nope, I need to go in bigger. So um, Ray just recently sent me my first email to him. Like, I'm ready to be on board, and I need this, 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 and this changed. And I want to do this, 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 and this. And he was like, remember that? I'm like, oh, man, I was so green-leafed and bright-eyed and bushy-tailed there. But I joined the board a year after um, running away. And I've been on the board since. I'm the vice president of the board now. I'm incredibly passionate about Safe Nest. I'm feel very, very strongly about the direction that our organization is going. We hired a new CEO um, last year, and she's fantastic. I'm honored to work with the board that we work with. I've learned so much from them. Um, Dana Dwiggins is our is the board president now. She's an attorney in town. She is just one powerful, powerful woman when it comes to she wants to be, you know, hands-on in the dirt and we'll get it all done. I have no idea how she accomplishes what she accomplishes, but I do because I'll see her post on Facebook and she doesn't sleep. So um, <laughs> she's, she's super, super impressive and I'm honored to work with her um, to bringing a lot of the new programs that we have going on um, to fruition and also, you know, to really working towards our mission of eradicating domestic violence in our community. There's a lot of work to be done. Um, Safe Nest offers multiple services. We have a 24-hour hotline. We do court advocacy where somebody accompanies a victim to court, which is a necessity. Um, When I was getting my restraining order, you have to go to court with the person you're getting a restraining order with. Um, There's no separate rooms that you're held in, so my ex-boyfriend just sat right across from me while we were waiting to go into the courtroom and stared at me, and then tried to attack me on the way out of the courtroom as well. Um, So, you know... That's just unbelievable. Yeah, but, you know, that's what a lot of people think, like... um, And that's the other thing, too, is I think that the... One of the myths of domestic violence is, like, oh, just slapped her around a few times. Like, no, my ex-boyfriend tried to murder me multiple times and was not opposed to mm-hmm. attacking me in public, like was not. So back to court advocacy is, is mm-hmm. great. Um, we have a confidential shelter. We are the only confidential shelter in Southern Nevada. If you, there's a metro call and they're bringing someone into our shelter, we will meet them at another location and then we will take the victim in. That's really important to us. We do preventive education. Um, we're partnering up with the school district this year where not only um, every student will be educated on domestic violence, but also teachers and how to recognize it in homes. We do counseling. 
there's got to be stuff I'm missing. I'm, but seeing there's the, I'm seeing the picture <laughs> of how you opened earlier, which is this is a community problem and there's a community solution. Yeah. No, it definitely is. Um, you know, I have, I've had so many people that are there to help me. I mean, I, as I mentioned, even your wife was the one who referred me to the therapist that I've seen since then. So, you know, having those people to mm-hmm. lean on is a, a great, great benefit, but a lot of victims don't have that. And so Safe Nest provides that if you don't have a support system, we will support you. And if you ever want to reach out to me directly, I'm happy to do my best to support you too. How do people find you? Um, you can find me at my office. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always at my office. Um, <laughs> I tend to be at the Grand Bazaar shops often as well. Um, <laughs> but you no, know, you are welcome to call me or email me. I've had several colleagues, um, several friends who have put me in touch with somebody that they're concerned about. I've had people reach out to me and say, you know, my my sibling's going through this, my friend is going through this, how do I help? And I think the best way for anybody to help um, immediately is to listen without judgment, to be an open door when, when the victim is ready, and to be patient because it's not, it's not quick. It's not quick and it's ongoing. Next month, what's going on? Oh, yeah, it's ongoing. So um, court took me three years to actually get him to plead guilty. After that, and I mean, that is probably one of the most, um, oh yeah, that is a good post. Sorry, he just showed me my, my Facebook <laughs> post. Um, um, you know, that's the court process, um, going to the sentencing hearing and having to read the mm-hmm. most um, horrendous things that have ever happened to you. And I, there's still parts of my story that will always be left in that in that room. I don't need everybody mm-hmm. to hear those. Um, Amy and Jared have always accompanied me. They accompanied me um, then. I never let my mom accompany me because I didn't want her to know the details. And, uh, I mean, court sucks. So back to the question. Mm-hmm. Um, so next week, I or next month, I go to the parole board to restate my statement to make sure that he doesn't make parole. Um, what he pled to, he finally accepted a plea deal, and it was 6 to 17 years. It was actually 5 to 12 years um, with a lifetime parole and had to be a registered sex offender. The lifetime parole and registered sex offender was most important to me because um, my ex-boyfriend is incredibly attractive. He's very, very charming, and I didn't want any other woman to ever be blindsided by that again. Um, So I wanted you to be able to look him up and you be able to see exactly the monster that you're dealing with. So when we went to court, um, I was really surprised um, because after I said my statement, um, the the judge asked both attorneys to come to the stand and I'm like, oh my God, they're not going to like accept this. And the, the prosecutor comes back to me and he goes, well, I haven't seen this happen often, but the judge thinks he needs to have more time. He's not happy with the amount of time that he needs to serve. So the deal now is six to 17 years in prison with lifetime parole and uh, being a registered sex offender. If he agrees to that right now, then we can close this chapter and you can move on. There's a chance he might not, and we have to go through this process again. And I thought that there is no way he was going to agree to this, but luckily he did. And I went to breakfast. Um, Amy and Jared took me. My best friend Emily was there as well. She's Canadian and flew down. Um, And Ray met us. Um, And it was just like one of those moments where I thought that I was going to feel all this relief, but Mm -hmm. it wasn't necessarily, you know, 
it wasn't I wasn't free yet. Um, I don't think I'll ever be free. And I think that the way that I take that, and as long as I continue to take that pain and push it into purpose, then the better I feel about it. But, you know, being done with court isn't over. I, I still have to go next month before the parole board and restate my statement to try to make sure that he doesn't make parole. Um, the problem with parole and being arrested in Nevada, even though none of his family lives here and he has very few friends, mm-hmm. um, he will still be paroled in Nevada. So does that change my life again? It might. I don't know. Am I scared of it? No. I'm not scared anymore. Am I ready for the battle? I feel like I've been in a battle ever since. So, you know, it's those things are tough, though. They're not things that I always want to think about. You have to deal with them. You have to see them through. So you're vocal about your experiences, obviously. You are a social media maven. <laughs> and I think it was earlier this year, it might have been even before that, you posted something on Facebook with a picture of yourself standing. I'll describe it. Um, so you're standing, it looks like, on a bridge with a white top and a, and a blue skirt. Uh, the pose that you have, uh, I'll describe it as akimbo. You have your arms to your hips, very, <laughs> very strong power stance. And then you talk about what's going on in your life in this picture. The, the purpose of your post is uh, to promote Safe Nest and, their, and the Big Give. Yeah. So I'd like for you to read what you wrote in, your, sure. in your voice. So the photo um, was taken um, while I was in this relationship, and I was modeling at the time, so I was always updating my portfolio. And um, this was one of those photos. Um, and so this was I posted the photo to show that like this is what domestic violence looks like. like. So my post, domestic violence does not fit a stereotypical profile. This photo was taken six years ago, a week before my ex-boyfriend had poured vodka over me and held my head over a lit stove, threatening to watch me burn to death if I left. He had already ripped my dress off that was too short and lit that on fire. When I used to look at this photo, it would infuriate me. The bruises that were on my arms and legs were photoshopped, indicating the weakness of my body. The lies and shame in my eyes, hiding the nightmare of a life that I was living. The hope in my heart that he would change, and the light in my soul that wanted to live but didn't know how many more days I had left. My mind had lost the battle to my heart and was suddenly just that, lost. Six years later, (laughs) countless hours of therapy, a loving support system, a purpose within Safe Nest, and I look at it differently. My stance resembles strength. No matter how much he wanted to crush me emotionally and physical, I still stand tall and proud. Regardless how horrible he was to me that I never turned my back on love, an ultimate appreciation for life that most will never understand. It never really is appreciated until it is slipping from your hands. That light on my chest to me uh, resembles my soul shining through the pain, ready to use my pain to desperately try to help others in a similar situation. One in two women in Nevada will be affected by domestic violence. I'm not the only one you know. Big gives fantastic. I'll talk about that too in a second. Um, But help me stand for someone who is not yet strong enough to stand for themselves. Like so many of you helped me stand when I couldn't stand for myself. Um, Because it is true. Um, It is a community solution. I've talked about several people in our community, and I have left out many. Um, I can't tell you the amount of phone calls I've had, um, people just checking on me to make sure that I was okay, you know, people still checking in to see how I'm doing. There is a huge, huge huge support system that stands behind me and I am so honored to have them and you know that's 
that's the only thing you can do for somebody is, is stand for them. And I'm ready to stand for any victim that I need to. I've accompanied girls that I met through social media to get restraining orders. I've met several people at Starbucks and told my story, um, hoping to save their lives. Through my social media post, I promised that after being gone for a year that I would become vocal about my story. And I started to post um, in October. Um, it's Domestic Violence Awareness Month, so I used October as my month to post. And I posted a, a bit of my story every single day. Um, through that, I met several girls who I never even knew. I still follow them, and they're in healthy relationships now. One was in California. Um, she's about to get married. Um, another one's having a baby. You know, there's so many of those successes, and that is why I will always be vocal about my story and Safe Nest and what we have going on. Um, we have some great new programs coming to fruition. Um, we've already started what we call PS417, which is the call for Metro, that it's a domestic violence call. Before, when there was a domestic violence call, you would be handed this little card with our info on it to call us. Um, now, one of our advocates is um, out of the North Station, where we get the most domestic violence calls. Um, we will soon roll this out all across the, um, the city, but um, now one of our advocates is called to the house with the police officers and the advocate will try to get the victim out of out of this situation, which is so powerful. It's giving me chills. I know. The amount of lives that we're able to save with this program is just fantastic. Um, I mean... It, when you say saving lives, this is people that don't die because of domestic violence. Yeah. How many people, though, lives that you're saving, getting them out of that situation, yeah. even though... It's hard to say the numbers, you know. I'm, yeah, I'm just saying rhetorically, I mean, it's in, in remarkable. In Las Vegas, it's easy. You uh, Weekly, we have somebody being murdered, almost, um, from domestic violence. Wow. Last year alone, I think there were... Oh, there were... I don't want to miss say. There was mm. a ton of murders, including two children. Um, two children were murdered. Someone killed their own child to try to get somebody to stay. I mean, there are... It is a community problem, and you would be blind to not see it. It is all over our news. Um, there is always a domestic violence call, and there is always a domestic violence murder. Um, so to have this, um, where we have an advocate who is trained to deal with victims, be at that call to help try to mm -hmm. take them out is so powerful. And I mean, it's definitely more powerful than a card with a phone number mm -hmm. on it, that's for sure. So I'm, I'm pumped about that. Um, the other program that we're starting um, next year is Camp Hope. Camp Hope is for um, children in, in domestic violence situations. Um, not only is it going to give them a place of, you know, peace, it's also going to help us try to break the cycle because we recognize the cycle of mm -hmm. domestic violence. We're very aware of how it happens. And while there doesn't seem to be rhyme or reason, a lot of abuser stories are very, very similar. It's the victim stories that vary a little bit, um, like where their, their background is from, but the abusers are all pretty much the cut from the same cloth um, when it comes to being in an abusive home um, as a child. And so Camp Hope will not only give kids like a getaway from mm -hmm. this horrendous life, we'll also start training and teaching them what healthy relationships do look like. Because when you're raised... they don't know. You yeah, don't know what you don't know. Exactly. And so then 
when you're an adult, you go and you seek out mm-hmm. the relationship that was your example. And if that's unhealthy, then you're seeking that yeah. out as well. So that's another great program. Um, like I said earlier, we're working with the school district um, right now to get some programming in, not only for the students, but for teachers and staff to also recognize domestic violence at home. They are already trained to recognize child abuse, but just because it hasn't hit the child yet doesn't mean it won't. And oftentimes when there's an extreme power control, there will be a threat to the children Mm. um, if they're not getting their point across. So, you know, it's just a matter of time before that becomes child abuse. So starting to recognize domestic violence before it becomes to that, that's powerful too. We're also trying to work on, you know, our goal would be to have some transitional housing. Um, While we shelter a, a good amount of victims, throwing them back out into the city without, you know, we we already work with um, some really great partners where we'll set them up with an apartment and all the things that they need. Um, But it's hard for them to stand on their own, Um, especially the ones that are financial dependent upon their abusers and have a family of four, you know, Um, going daycare is expensive. You have three kids. (laughs) Like, you know, I don't Mm -hmm. know how someone who makes minimum wage lives on their own, puts their kids through daycare while trying to stay away from the abuser that's the father of their children mm-hmm. um so having some sort of transitional housing would be a huge goal and i would really love to see that happen before i'm done with being on the board of safe nest um so it's and i think with my my real estate background i might be able to help there so i think i have so an idea say, for you if you're you, not already on the path i mean send send them all ideas all our multi-family guys hit me up <laughs> <laughs> uh that's great that's uh you know ending on on a positive and bright note that this isn't just a black hole that there are no solutions for that there are people like you and, and organizations like safe that are that are creating viable solutions yeah, yeah so sure. any other thoughts before we wrap up No, I think that I just want to end it with, again, it's a community issue. It's a community solution. If you see something, say something. If someone reaches out to you, listen without judgment. Um, We have resources. Um, Please reach out to us. We have a 24-hour hotline. Um, You are all welcome to reach out to me directly. I'm always happy to try to help as much as possible. And thanks so much for having me. Really, It's been fun. Even my, though you made me cry. Yeah, so I'd say it's my pleasure. Uh, I got a lot of great takeaways. Like you said, uh, community problems should have community solutions. Uh, int- something you said, pushing pain into purpose. Yeah. That's a great takeaway and life lesson. Another one that came to mind as you were talking, and it's, you know, you've heard the quote before. You saw the memes out there. You don't know the battle other people are going through. Yeah, I've so just, that just be times. kind. And then the last one, when I read your post that you read that came to me is that, there's always a choice, and you chose to see your adversity uh, in a way where you're not the victim, and now you've yeah. become a fighter. Yeah, for sure. You, you know, um, what happens to you makes you a victim. How you handle it makes you a survivor, and um, I'm proud of my survivorship. I'm proud of how far I've come, and I hope that it is just able to transcend to somebody else to show that they can also do this too. It's not, it's not the end all. There's plenty of light. And to be honest, um, I've probably seen much more success than I deserve to in 31 years, um, mostly because of my resilience in fighting with domestic violence. I don't think that's an accident. Mm-hmm. Thank you for coming on, Angelica. You're an active person. You have a tour to get to at Area 15. Yes. 
<laughs> Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'd love to hear from you about your takeaways from this episode. Make sure to leave us a review and send in your comments. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Takeaways podcast is about sharing and paying it forward. If you like this show, please make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. It really goes a long way. And if you really like the show, please share takeaways with a friend. Thank you and tune in next time.